Good morning. That was not very energetic. Good morning. All right. Did that not wake you up? That was, that was good. Thank you, Ryan. I'm going to start this morning by um, telling you a little bit about some conflict that is relatively normal uh, from when I was growing up. My, my brother and I, we would, we would just fight a lot, and that, that's the conflict. But uh, he is a few years younger than me, so our conflict would kind of uh, go back and forth. And he would mess with me, and I would mess with him. We'd instigate each other, and uh, it, it didn't always go well. But clearly, there is something that uh, I enjoyed about seeing him Angry, and there's something he enjoyed about seeing me angry, but neither one of us liked being angry. Um, so it just went like that. And our parents, they would recognize that. They would see that we're fighting. So they would sit us down, and they'd make us have a conversation. And uh, um, they would tell us to say sorry to one another. And we would. We, we would say sorry. But it wasn't because uh, we really felt sorry. It was because we didn't want to be in trouble with mom or dad. And uh, in fact, as soon as this whole little sorry thing happens and mom and dad leaves the room, we would just completely resume to messing with each other again. So what was happening there was cheap peace. Our parents, uh, they knew that we were not really sorry. Um, we, we would avoid we were saying sorry because we were avoiding our parents' wrath, basically. And so we didn't want to be in trouble, but we were taking the path of least resistance, really, without changing our hearts. And our parents knew that. They knew that we were often not genuine, and so most of the time they called us out for it. But sometimes they'd also settle for the cheap peace, and uh, that was because they were sick of us fighting and sick of the conflict, and they knew that... Uh, Telling us that would only make us more upset. So across the board, we're all just settling for, for cheap peace just to not feel the pain of it. This cheap peace is what we will see David settle for over and over again in 2 Samuel, especially here in, in chapter 14. And this will reap severe consequences for his family and for the nation of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you would open our hearts and minds this morning to your word, that we would be able to glean from this what it is that you have in store for us. Let us learn from David's failures and learn from your example how to love others and how to pursue reconciliation. Lord, I ask that you would speak and that you would get me out of the way. Um, pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Over the past few months, we have been going through 2 Samuel. And in chapters 11 and 12, David lusted after a woman named Bathsheba. And he decided to commit adultery with her. And when he found out that she was pregnant, he decided to have her husband killed so that he can cover it up. 
and he decided to marry her to, to cover this up, to make it look like nothing bad happened. This was natural. This was, this was, this was fine. And he later repented of that, but this began a cycle of failures that will lead Israel nearly to civil war. In chapter 13, we witnessed a series of terrible events, and Justin walked through some very difficult subjects. Absalom, Tamar, and Amnon are all David's children, but they did not treat each other like family. Tamar was raped by her brother Amnon. And this, uh, this rightfully angered David, but he didn't do anything about it. There was no punishment for Amnon. Instead, Absalom took care of Tamar, and his anger towards Amnon turned into hatred. And after two full years, he planned his vengeance for Tamar and killed Amnon, and then fled to Geshur, where his maternal grandfather was king. Chapter 14, which we're going to read through this morning, resumes three years later. And David has still done nothing. He did nothing about Amnon. Now he has done nothing about Absalom. But, but why? Why is he so inactive about this? The text doesn't tell us. But I want for a second us to try and put ourselves into David's shoes. What was he supposed to do? Demand his son be extradited so he could be executed for murder? That, that sounds harsh for a father. Not just that, bringing justice to his son would only draw attention to his own inability to lead his own household. It would be embarrassing. Think about this news story. The king's son is being executed for murdering his brother as revenge for violating their sister. This is literally a royal mess. So then what? What's the other option? Pardon him and bring him home as if he's innocent? Imagine the accusation he could receive for that. What injustice! You only excused him because he is your son. Why didn't you pardon my son? Not only that, but what good is a pardon if there is no repentance? You see, David was feeling the tension between love and justice. As a father, he longed to be reconciled to his son. But as king, he knows he needs to uphold justice. And instead, he's paralyzed and fails to pursue either or both. Maybe it's not fair to say that he wrestled with the tension. He just simply forfeited. Meanwhile, Absalom has spent the last three years hiding from his father. And this is where Joab comes in. Joab is King David's nephew and his military commander. David has failed to do anything about his fugitive son, but Joab has noticed that something 
in David's temperament has changed. Verse 1, chapter 14 says, Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. I don't know about you, but I, I don't usually use this phrase, someone's heart went out to. And uh, actually, the scholars who are translating this verse, they're not entirely sure what it's saying either. Because there is a lot of debate on the Hebrew here. As for what exactly this verse means, actually hinges on how you translate the last verse of chapter 13, which Justin discussed two weeks ago. The ESV translates it as, and the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. The Hebrew words translated in the ESV as long to go out to are considered almost untranslatable by most scholars because the Hebrew is ambiguous about whether the king's desires were positive or negative towards Absalom, which changes the way that this would be understood and, and translated. But because of David's behavior towards Absalom later, some commentators and translators lean towards it being translated something like and the spirit of the king ceased to go out toward Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's mind was on Absalom. So you can see this is two slightly different, uh, very different ideas, and it's ambiguous. But personally, I lead towards this uh, latter interpretation and translation because it will take a lot to get David to be in Absalom's presence again. But either way, it seems that something about David's attitude towards Absalom, whether it is positive or no longer negative, it's changed. It's changed because he has found peace about Amnon's death, and Joab thinks that reconciliation might be possible now. Verse 1 explains this. It says that Joab notices this, and he jumps on that opportunity. But now, for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize much of this first section. But I want to encourage you to skim through uh, these first 23 verses with me um, and, and to even read it later. It's, it's, it's an interesting story. So, verse 2 to 23 here, Joab has decided to intervene. And he attempts to convince David to reconcile with his son Absalom. This reminds me of when Nathan used a parable to show David his sin and lead him to repentance. But now Joab is doing something like this, and he's sending this wise woman from Tekoa to do the same thing. Come up with a made-up story and teach it to him, or tell it to him, to convince him to seek reconciliation with his son. This sounds like a benevolent thing to do. Job's going to try and help David reconcile. He's going to use this story to, to get him to understand it. But it's also important to note that Joab's responsibility was to keep David's kingdom secure. David is getting older, and he needs a successor. And Absalom is a popular guy. 
I suspect that Joab may have been looking out for the kingdom in this as well. It would be better to have David's popular son at home in peace than afar in unresolved conflict where he could stir up more trouble. Regardless, Joab has decided to intervene, and rather than talking to David directly, he conceives this plan to convince David through analogy or parable with this woman, and it works, kind of. So this woman, she walks up to David dressed in grieving clothes, really acting the part, and she pleads to David to spare her son's life. She explains that her son killed her other son, and when the leaders of her community came to execute her son for murder, she refused to give him over because she was a widow. And this was her last living son. The only one who could carry their name to the next generation. She pleads with him, please save my son for the sake of my family line. And David agrees, telling her to go home as he will give orders to make sure that this happens. And she thanks him. But then she insists that he swear by the Lord that he will protect her son. And David gives in. He says, not a hair on your son's head will be disturbed. But then the woman asks to say one last thing. But it's, it's not really a request. It's, it's more of an accusation. She asks, why then... Have you planned such a thing against the people of God? She's effectively calling him a hypocrite for sparing her son's life for the sake of her family, but not Absalom's life for the sake of Israel. What has happened here is that she's saying, in you giving this ruling for me, you have judged your own case as well. But in this case, the consequences are not just for my family. They're not just for your family, they're for all of Israel. In other words, this conflict with your son has the potential to lead to Israel's demise. The implication is that Absalom is the last chance for Israel to survive. But this is not technically true. David has other sons who can take the throne. Perhaps a more realistic concern is if Absalom continues to grow in his bitterness towards his father, what could he be capable of doing? But she doesn't stop talking here. She keeps going. And in verse 14, she says, We must all die. We are like spilled, like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. I think what she is saying here is, hey, Amnon is dead. But Absalom is not. And our God doesn't delight in death, but he delights in restoration. Of all the weird things that she says in this passage, I I think there's actually some, some truth in this one. But we will return to that later. And she continues talking. Before David can even respond, she keeps going. And she kind of softens the blow. She had just called him a hypocrite. And now she says this middle sentence. And now she's going to soften that blow with some flattery. 
She says, oh, David, I, I came to you because I was afraid of those coming after my son. But I knew that you would help me because you are like an angel of God who discerns right from wrong. At this point, David catches on. He says, did Joab put you up to this? To which she responds, oh, how can I hide anything from you? You really are as wise as an angel of God. I don't know how this worked, but it did. And David agrees, and he then sends Joab to bring Absalom back. But there's a, there's a glaring issue with this plan. Where is the justice? Absalom had murdered Amnon, and there's no consequences? No accountability? At the very least, how is Absalom's heart? Is he repentant? You see, there's a pattern here. David never punished Amnon for raping his sister, and now he seems to have agreed to let Absalom go unpunished for murdering his brother. I think William G. Blakey makes a great point about this when he writes, Nathan's parable was designed to rouse the king's conscience as against his feelings. The woman of Tekoa's to rouse his feelings as against his conscience. As king, David knew that he should not let this go unpunished. He has a responsibility to make things right in terms of public justice. But even as a father, he should have known that it's not loving to simply let his son's sin go unchecked. But the woman of Tekoa, she pulls on his heartstrings and she uses his emotions to overlook this. She uses his emotions to overlook justice. But if he wants to be reconciled with his son, it will require justice. Reconciliation requires some form of justice. There are often real consequences for our sins that should not be ignored. If sin is simply overlooked, as if it isn't there, it will never be dealt with, which prevents any lasting peace. It takes time to restore trust. And there may need to be discipline or corrective action to make things right. Without justice, the issue that broke the relationship will never be addressed. And though it could be ignored for a season, it usually will come back again, dealing more damage than the first time. We see this with David. He should have called Absalom home much sooner to address what he had done to Amnon. And frankly, had David not overlooked justice with Amnon, maybe Absalom would not have felt the need to deal vengeance himself. Perhaps David's biggest mistake as a father is being so disengaged, so permissive with his sons that we never see him confront them about their sin. He never disciplines them as a good father would. And as king, he never holds them accountable to the law. Perhaps they thought they were above the law. It's my dad. He's king. Now, 
I admit that David's situation is very different from many of ours. I don't think most of us have to wrestle with the roles between father and king. David is certainly in a pickle here. But my point is that it is actually unloving of David to overlook justice. And by overlooking justice, he is simply enabling his son to go deeper into sin. Let's resume in verse 24. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar, named after his sister. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. In this middle section, verses 25 to 27, we get some oddly specific kind of out-of-left-field information about Absalom's appearance. We learn that Absalom is very handsome, and this is epitomized by his hair. First person that came to mind for me was Uncle Jesse from Full House. His hair was the source of his pride. It seems that it's the same with Absalom. The impression is that Absalom is full of himself. Ironically, the same thing that was the source of his pride would later cause his death when his hair got caught in a tree while in a battle. Then in verses 24 and 28, bookending this, we learn that even though David pardoned Absalom, he has rejected his son access to himself. For two years, David and Absalom lived in the same city. They never saw each other. This is why I'm inclined to believe that he didn't really have positive feelings towards his son yet, because if he wanted to see him, he could have, but he has shunned him instead. Though he has been pardoned politically, he is still guilty relationally. David has not yet forgiven his son. And by shunning his son for two years, he is just giving Absalom more fuel to grow in his bitterness towards his father. I think this is why the details of Absalom's appearance are bookended by this shunning. It seems that David's lack of forgiveness only set Absalom further into his prideful and selfish ways. It seems that forgiveness is also necessary here. Reconciliation requires forgiveness. Forgiveness is the dismissal or cancellation of a debt, which may sound like the opposite of justice, but it's not. Forgiveness is costly. It is the decision of the offended party to absorb the cost of the injustice themselves. 
It is refusing to pursue vengeance or expect payback. It is choosing to let go of bitterness and overcome evil with love. Tim Keller writes on this. He says, in all situations, when wrong is done, there is always a debt. And there is no way to deal with it without suffering. Either you make the perpetrator suffer for it, or you forgive and suffer for it yourself. Either you make the debtor pay by hurting them until you make things feel as if they're even, or you pay by forgiving and absorbing the pain within yourself. Forgiveness is always costly. It is emotionally very expensive. It takes much blood, sweat, and tears. Forgiveness is the first step towards restorative justice because it is neither complacent nor vengeance. It neither ignores the sin nor seeks payback. Forgiveness does not overlook justice. It calls sin by its name and absorbs the cost. That being said, forgiveness does not equal reconciliation. You can forgive someone and not be reconciled to them. In order to be reconciled, both sides must act. The offended party must forgive and the offender must repent. Let's keep reading. Verse 29. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king. But Joab would not come. And he sent a second time. But Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine. And he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So, Absalom's servants set the field on fire. And then Absalom arose, and he went to Absalom at his house and said to him, why have, you, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. There's a lot happening here. For one, we learn a bit more about the state of Absalom's heart. Talk about escalation. He just went from zero to 100 real quick. You would think there's other ways to, uh, I don't know, get someone's attention than by burning their fields. But it works. Joab shows up and Absalom says, if there's guilt in me, kill me. Sounds like a challenge. But when Absalom meets with David, David kisses his son, displaying peace. Oh, what a beautiful ending. Right? Well, you would only think that if you didn't read the next chapter. Absalom will soon lead a rebellion against his father. He never repented. 
You see, reconciliation requires repentance. Repentance is sincere regret about wrongdoing and turning from it. Although it seems that David has finally forgiven Absalom, he skips a step and settles for cheap peace. Kind of like that peace my brother and I had when we were in trouble growing up. Though the crime here being a bit more serious. Reconciliation without repentance is not true reconciliation. It's like having cancer and refusing treatment because you're pretending it's not there. And by accepting cheap peace, David is failing to love Absalom well. He is undermining the seriousness of his sin, and instead of warning Absalom about his cancer, he's going along with the lie, pretending all is well, leaving Absalom's sin unaddressed, leaving his cancer to kill him without treatment. And David is not without sin in this either. He has failed Absalom in many ways. He has much to repent of. We have witnessed him fail, both as a father and as a king, especially in his attempt at reconciling with Absalom. He overlooked justice. He refused forgiveness by denying relationship. And he settled for cheap peace without repentance. Surely, David loved his son. I I believe that. He wanted to restore him. He wanted to do what that woman from Tekoa said in verse 14. He wanted to bring his banished son home. But he fell short. He failed to reconcile the tension between love and justice. And instead, he failed in both departments. Up until this point, I have been preaching as if we are David. And though I think we have things to learn from David, I don't think it's because we should identify with him. Instead, I think that we are Absalom in this story. We are the banished one. We have sinned against one another and against God. Because of our sin, our relationship with God has been damaged and we have been separated from his presence. We have fled to Gesher. Like Absalom, we deserve the death penalty because the wages of sin is death. And if God is just, that is exactly what we should receive. But we also know that God loves us. We are his creation, his image bearers. So what will God do with this tension between love and justice? Well, this is what I think the woman from Tekoa got right perhaps even prophetic, when she said, God devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. David was unable to do this, but we have a better king and a better father who has reconciled love and justice. 
And he accomplished that on the cross. While we were still in Gesher, God initiated reconciliation with us by sending his son to die in our place. Romans 5, 6-8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John Stott explained it well when he writes, At the cross... In holy love, God, through Christ, paid the full penalty of our disobedience himself. He bore the judgment we deserve in order to bring us the reconciliation, the the forgiveness we do not deserve. On the cross, divine mercy and justice were equally expressed and eternally reconciled. God's holy love was satisfied. This is the gospel. This is the good news. We once were banished like Absalom. But God has devised a means for us to come home. You see, on the cross, justice was satisfied. Our sin was paid for by the death of Jesus. On the cross, forgiveness was offered to all. He absorbed the cost and offered us grace. Costly, costly grace. And through Christ, anyone can be reconciled to God. All we need to do is repent. There's no work to be done. He's accomplished it. Now we need to repent and believe And by the power of the Holy Spirit, many of us have accepted this offer. We've repented. We've been reconciled to God. This is why we're here this morning as the family of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ. But if you are here this morning and you have not repented of your sins and accepted Christ's offer of forgiveness, let me warn you. God will not settle for cheap peace. He will not overlook justice like David did. But the good news is that he loves you. He wants more than cheap peace. He wants true reconciliation with you, and he has devised means to make that possible. If you are here this morning and want to accept that offer and repent of your sins, I would love to speak with you afterwards or say something to someone around you. As for those of us who have been reconciled with God, I encourage you, don't forget the costly grace that made that possible. The same gospel that saved us ought to empower us to love others well and initiate reconciliation with them just like God did with us. 1 John 4, 10 to 11 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the appeasement of wrath for our sins. 
Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God forgave us of much, who are we to refuse that to others? We should share the heart of God. We should love what he loves and hate what he hates. We should learn to view others as God views them. Worth dying for. Forgiveness is costly. Are you willing to pay the cost of of reconciliation in your relationships? As God initiated reconciliation with us, so we are called to initiate reconciliation with others. And if there is something that we can learn from the failure of David and from the success of the cross, it's that biblical love does not settle for cheap peace, but offers costly grace in pursuit of true reconciliation. Let me say that again. Biblical love does not settle for cheap peace, but offers costly grace in pursuit of true reconciliation. This world is broken, and it needs a lot of reconciliation. And we are called to be the peacemakers. But if we're going to do that, we cannot settle for cheap peace. John Stott summarizes this well. He writes, The incentive to peacemaking is love, but it degenerates into appeasement whenever justice is ignored. To forgive and to ask for forgiveness are both costly exercises. All authentic Christian peacemaking exhibits the love and justice And so the pain of the cross. To conclude this morning, I I want to get a little more personal, if it hasn't been already. I want you to think about your own life. What does this mean for you? When in conflict, Where do you turn? Do you turn to God first? Notice that David never went to God about his sons. Said he tried to deal with it on his own, which is never a good idea. Do you ask God to help you share his heart towards them? Oftentimes, we need the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts towards others, to see them as he sees them, and to strengthen us to be able to endure the pain of peacemaking. Do you turn to fellow believers when in conflict? Do you have people around you that you can trust for advice and for prayer? Notice that David doesn't seek this out either. Joab had to step in. And his advice wasn't so great. 
But sometimes we do need people that we can trust to pray with us and to support us when things get difficult. Sometimes we need that outside perspective when our emotions are getting in the way. Sometimes we need correction. With that is my second question. What are your tendencies? Complacence or vengeance? Are you like David who tends to ignore the elephant in the room? Or are you like Absalom who tends to take the law into his own hands? Do you tend to overlook justice doing nothing? Or do you tend to refuse forgiveness, turning to bitterness and revenge? It's good to know what our tendencies are so that we can go to God about it before we act. Oftentimes, we choose the path that seems the most comfortable to us. Either it's too painful to address the sin and pursue true reconciliation, or it's too painful to forgive and absorb the cost ourselves. The third question is, who do you need to initiate reconciliation with? If you are currently in conflict, has the sin been addressed? Have you forgiven them, or have you asked for forgiveness? Has there been genuine repentance? Have you exhausted every avenue for peace? Have you exhausted every avenue for peace? Have you felt the pain of peacemaking yet? If not, you, you haven't been trying hard enough. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Let's say that you have done everything you can do. You have exhausted every avenue of peace, and yet they have refused to forgive you or repent. Then what? Pray for them. Pray that you would continue to have God's heart towards them and pray that they would repent. Which leads to my last question. Will you rejoice in reconciliation? In other words, would you celebrate if they genuinely repented? I know this is a hard one for me. It is, it is easy to feel so justified in a conflict that you grow comfortable about it. So much so that you would almost prefer things to stay as they are. If they were to repent tomorrow, you would almost feel disappointed because you know this means a long, painful path of peacemaking. It's been so nice with them not around. Now we got a long way to go. But is that the heart of God for them? No. No, he was willing to die for peace with them. And we should too. Our joy should not be found in our comfort. It should be found in Christ who rejoices in reconciliation. So we should too. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for what you accomplished on the cross. Thank you for not leaving us in Gesher. Thank you for devising a means to bring us home, reconciling love and justice. Lord, I ask that you would help us to grasp and appreciate the costly grace that reconciled us with you, and that you would give us the eyes to see those in our lives, whether it is those in the world, whether they're in our family, whether they're our brothers and sisters in Christ, that you would help us to see them with the heart of yours. Help us to see them through the lens of the gospel that you died for them. Help us to reflect you. Help us to learn to initiate reconciliation with others joyfully praying for peace. Lord, let our pursuit of reconciliation be an image of the reconciliation that you have accomplished for us so that the reconciliation in this world between all of our relationships is not the only reconciliation happening, but that they would see that and that they would see the gospel in it and that they would turn to you. That they would accept the offer that you gave them of costly, costly grace, and that they would repent of their sins. Lord, help us to see this and by the power of your Spirit to act. I pray this in your Son's name. Amen.